Heavenly Father, thank you for today your word. Lord, we just have a complete honor in you and what you do for us, your people. Lord, help us to be always faithful and not wander away and listen to other people that are talking about other things than you. Lord, we want to be your servants and do your will in all our ways. Lord, we do pray for this country as well. Some of the difficulties we're going through right now and how horrible it is. Not only for this country, but worldwide. There's so many atrocities going on throughout the world. Lord, that we know that you have seen this and we know that you do not approve of this. So, Lord, help us to do whatever we can do to ease pain and people throughout the world as well as in this country. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your guidance. In your name, amen. 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 Good morning. Good morning. So, we get started this morning. So, quick, quick show of hands. How many people would claim Psalm 103 is their favorite song? They're, yeah, they're all my favorite. That's, every time I read a psalm, I say, yeah, and this is one of my favorites. Uh, let's open this morning with Psalm 103. If someone would like to read Psalm 103, this is a, a psalm of David. Uh, in the little paragraph title of the interpreter uh, put in, Praise for the Lord's Mercies. Someone would like to read Psalm 103? Go for it. I bless the holy name of God with all my heart. Yes, I will bless the Lord and not forget the glorious things He does for me. He forgives all my sins. He heals me. He ransoms me from hell. He surrounds me with loving kindness and tender mercies. He fills my life with good things. My youth is renewed like the eagles. He gives justice to all who are treated unfairly. He revealed his will and nature to Moses and the people of Israel. He is merciful and tender toward those who don't deserve it. He is slow to get angry and full of kindness and love. He never bears a grudge, nor remains angry forever. He has not punished us as we deserve for all our sins. For his mercy toward those who fear and honor him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far away from us as the east is from the west. He is like a father to us, tender and sympathetic to those who reverence him. And he knows we are blessed, and that our days are few and brief, like grass, like flowers, blown by the wind and gone forever. But the loving kindness of the Lord is everlasting to ever lasting to those who reverence him. His salvage is to children's children of those who are faithful to his covenant and remember to obey him. The Lord has made the heavens his throne. From there he rules over everything there is. Bless the Lord, you mighty angels of his who carry out his orders, listening for each of his commands. Yet
bless the Lord, you armies of his angels, who serve him constantly. Let everything, everywhere, bless the Lord, and how I bless him too. Amen. Amen. <laughs> I, I love this song, of course. I love a lot of songs, but... Um, starts out with bless the Lord oh my soul and it ends with bless the Lord oh my soul and bracketed in between that yeah. is um, the tender mercies of our Lord um, our Savior the one who's actively working in every moment of our life that nothing happens by mistake um, just share a, a personal thing that happened uh, to, to at our house last night I have a friend, I was thinking this morning, I've known him for 25 years. When I came out to the Northwest, um, he was really kind of the first guy I hooked up with. And uh, he's a very uh, staunch atheist. And we would have great discussions about philosophy and religion. And, and uh, even though he thought I was an idiot, he's continued to hang around with me for 25 years. <laughs> Interestingly, he got uh, a form of uh, leukemia about uh, 10 years ago and uh, almost died but has since had full recovery and got married and now has uh, four children which is pretty remarkable blessing in his life well he was unemployed a few years back uh, and just so happened that his skill set happened to fit an opening in our shop and so I had the the, uh, the opportunity to tell him about that. He came to work, so now he actually works uh, with me in my group, and I guess I'm his boss indirectly. <laughs> so in that capacity, I invited the office over to our house last night, and he brought his wife with him, who's also a very staunch atheist. She's a physician and uh, doesn't believe anything in the Bible is true, uh, although she knows of the Bible. Um, and I got a text this morning at 8 o'clock thanking uh, us for opening our home to them. Um, they were incredibly blessed. And we had a short prayer before the meal. You know, they walk into my office, any of, or our living room, any of the bent of our house for Bible study, you know, I've got these bookshelves set up and all my uh, reference stuff for the Bible. So the whole living room is about uh, honoring the Lord, and so you can't, you can't not see that, right? And I have these two atheists, and yet they're thanking me for opening our home. And for me, that's 25 years worth of uh, planting and watering and uh, interacting with folks that you just never know. Every moment is important. Uh, keep working on it. Pardon? Say keep working on it. Yes, and you know... When I read Psalm 103, it, it blows me away because David got that kind of insight. He didn't get that kind of insight at the beginning of his journey, and he didn't necessarily hold on to it tight all the way through. But what you see is that David really, really came to understand something very significant about the Lord and about his involvement in his life and how he, uh, every step he took, the Lord directed. And... When we look at what's going on right now, which is the rebellion uh, against uh, David's kingship. Now, you got to remember, what do we know about David and his kingship? Anybody want to give me a couple-sentence summary? He was chosen, right? So he was the least likely 
uh, in his family, certainly. But even, by our standards. Pardon? By our standards. By our standards, right. What God saw was something different in David than what everybody else would have seen. What everybody else saw, they saw this tall, handsome guy named Saul and thought he, want, he should be our king because he's uh, tall and dashing and comes from a wealthy family. Um, we want him to, to be our king. And yet God chose David, described as a, a ruddy little shepherd boy, and worked in his life throughout history, David's history, to make him into the king that God wanted. So David was called to his position. And in, in that responsibility, he failed uh, grossly. And so we've been looking at um, both the content and uh, the nature of sin. All right, so we looked at David's failure, and what was his gross failure? I mean, everybody has failures, right? I woke up this morning, and I'm sure that half of my life was wrong. At least. <laughs> I mean, you know, and I was thinking about that because yesterday uh, I had these prayer times in the shower, and I used I did this uh, when I was. Uh, um, a single parent, and I would just be totally exhausted. I'd get up at, at four in the morning, and I'd go until almost midnight, so I had to, my four hours of rest. And The only way I could start every day after doing this for years <clears throat> was to get into the shower and just turn on the water, and I'd get down on my knees and just let the water pour on me, and I would, and I would pray. And it's been actually a while since I've had to do that. Or, or had the opportunity to do that. And so yesterday, I don't know what it was, just the weight of the world, I got down on my knees and prayed from the shower till the hot water ran out. Yeah, you know, it's, it's just, everybody has different habits, and so that's, that's one of mine. But The Bible says to get into a little room. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's interesting, you know, I, I know that I've been praying a while when your extremities start falling asleep and things like that. So. Um, you know, these, are, these are things that, um, when we reflect on who we are and what God's doing, and we recognize our own uh, failures, and David had some gross failures, he, his gross failures that we read about, are that uh, he committed adultery, he was party to murder. Um, what other kind of good things did David do? Well, I'm sure he <laughs> told lies, he did, you know, coveted his, his neighbor's stuff. He wasn't a very good father. Wasn't a very good father. So, you know, in honoring your mother and father, you do that by raising your kids such that they don't become unruly grandkids. So, uh, so in, you know, I mean, I'm just thinking of the Ten Commandments going down the list, right? David got crosswise a lot with God. And when David would come back from being crosswise, where did he start? He'd always start at number one. You shall have no other God before me. And he'd go to number two. won't have any idols. Go to number three, right? Don't take the Lord's name in vain. He would just move down the list and he would create a place where he would come into God's presence and experience the tender mercies of God. And that's what you read 
in Psalm 103. And this is from a guy who understood rebellion and failure. So when we read through about the rebellion and David's response, this is a lesson to us about how we put our lives back together on a daily basis. And this wasn't something that just happened overnight. So with that, somebody can remind me, I, I saw a couple of hands go up. Nope. Somebody can remind me, where did we leave off last week? <coughs> Anybody remember? We're looking at this larger section. Yes, sir. Well, it was 15. Yeah, second time of 15. And I, and I think there was a great story that I think we just read and left. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but about this uh, Atiyah. About? And, and his dedication. Atiyah? I think. A-I? Yes. And the passing over, they're leaving Jerusalem. Yep. Um, I thought that was. Anyway, we're out we're of right there. And we stopped at 12, but then you read it Yeah, it sounds like me. So I, <laughs> I thought we were already into chapter 16. No, yeah. we discussed up to 12. And then okay, got it. So, discussing up to 12, we were looking at how Absalom made his play. Right? Uh, Absalom, he, uh, a very crafty guy. Just as David didn't recover in his life uh, from his sin overnight. Absalom didn't enter into his sin overnight. It took, took a while, and he's working on this and stewing on this and thinking about this and plotting, and this rebellion started many years before. And finally, he makes his play. He gets the, the chariots um, and, and presents himself as a king, and then he retreats to Hebron, which would have been the, uh, the capital of Judah. So I'll bring up, just to give you some context. So, Hebron, and did it go out of focus, or my eyes just getting worse? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it went out of focus. I don't know if that's any better or not. That's okay, we can't read it. Yeah, you can't read it. <laughs> so I'll just point, uh, this being... Uh, a lot of the area of Israel that um, we pay attention to in Second Samuel. I'll go out one just to give you a broader context. Okay, so here's Israel. Land's pretty much the same today as it was back in, in this day. So all the way from northern Israel to southern Israel. So when you read about all these things happening in the news, it's this little spit of land right here, about 150 miles north to south. This area here, you see the Dead Sea, this area in here is called Judah, and the capital of Judah would be right smack dab in the center, a place called Hebron. So what Absalom did is he started his coup in Hebron, he, uh, because the key to overthrowing the government, if you are trying to unseat uh, a very a successful and established leader, which his father was, you want to start uh, by tearing apart the family. And David's family tribe was Judah. So he's going to win the hearts of Judah first, and then he's going to win the hearts of all the people. And that's what you see is his objective, is to win the hearts of the people. 
In fact, we see that. Um, so if I can find it in the. Somebody want to want to help me out here? Oh, verse thirteen. Um, in chapter 15, verse 13, uh, what what happened is that Absalom set out to uh, win the hearts of the people, and I know that I'm not seeing the verse jump out at me right at the moment, but I mean, that was his goal. Uh, verse 6, it says, In this manner Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. So this is, this is what rebellion is about. It's a hijack of the heart. And what happens is, is that people that enter into rebellion want others to join them. We read about that in Romans uh, chapter 1, where it talks about the nature of sin and rebellion against God, and that those who do that want to influence others to join them to do the same, because it adds strength to their rebellion. uh, People like company, it's more than that. Yes, sir. you have any idea why he thought he had to have permission to go to Hebron? Could he not move within the country freely without his dad's permission? Um, well, we talked about that a little bit last week, and that he would have been in the in the court of the king, so he would have been noticed. And if you're trying to pull off a coup, oh. you want to uh, be as innocent looking as possible oh, so before you put down okay. put down your play. And so. Uh, he asked to go to Hebron, but I mean, it's very intentional on Absalom's part. He's 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 uh, spent a lot of time working on this, and he starts out down here in Hebron, and David hears about it after uh, Absalom has made himself king over Judah, and that's where we start out in uh, in verse thirteen. Then a messenger came to David, saying, "The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom." And David said to all of his servants who were with him. At Jerusalem, arise and let us flee, for otherwise none of us will escape from Absalom. Go in haste, or he will overtake us quickly and bring down calamity on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. So, once Absalom took Judah, his next play is to go to Jerusalem and go for the whole kingdom. And he didn't do this uh, without preparation. So, Absalom, we know, and Doug asked me this question before, uh, it's like, well, didn't David have 600 mighty men? And wasn't he the commander-in-chief of the armies? Couldn't he have, you know, put this whole thing down really quickly? Couldn't he have taken out Absalom and shut him up? And Absalom, got to remember, he's a very crafty guy. So he got 200 uh, influential people in the king's court unaware to Hebron. And we know that those 200 weren't necessarily David's mighty men, but in doing that, that gives you an idea of the scope of what he's pulling off. He probably had thousands, maybe tens of thousands of men behind him at this point when he goes to make his play, such that David, knowing that even though he's got you know the, the royal guard, the 600 mighty men, and has armies uh, to protect him, realizes that he's in jeopardy. And he says, you know, if we don't get out of here, we're not going to last the day. So, Isn't it also he's protecting the people? Because he said the ruin would come upon them, but he put the city to the sword. So isn't he right. trying to prevent brother against brother? Right. Yeah. David is a formidable force. So you don't sneak up on David and stick a knife in his back. Right? Um, 
in order to get to David, they basically have to take out the city. And they're willing to do that. So you're correct. David, what's the job of the king? The good king? Yep, provide, protect, and serve. So he's protecting the people by fleeing. And he gives them the option. He says, you don't have to come. You can stay here, you can join the new regime, or you can follow us, we're headed out. And he doesn't say where he's headed. But the, the path that he takes is over, um, if Jerusalem's right here, he's headed this ascent going down into the Rift Valley here, um, called the, uh, doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, that kind of game or something like that. For some reason, my brain's not clicking on names this morning. But anyway, this is uh, the classic ascent down into Jericho. And so that's the ascent that he takes. He goes out the eastern gate of uh, the walled city uh, there, and he heads down the eastern gate and goes through the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, over the Mount of Olives. He actually goes right next to where Jeremiah was from in Anathoth, uh, and then heads down this ridge route going down into the Rift Valley. And he's not alone. He's got a whole lot of folk with him, and he's got everything that they can grab. So these people are fleeing because where Hebron to Jerusalem is a very short distance. Bethlehem, which is right here, so here's Jerusalem, here's Bethlehem, that's only seven miles. So you can see this is only about you know, 25 miles, maybe. And if you've got an army coming down on you and they're only 25 miles away, it doesn't take long to cover that ground. So they're packing everything they can really quickly and headed out the door. And uh, you got to remember David's got, David's got a, uh, a big family and all sorts of trappings, and so it just takes a while. And he heads out, and what you read next is the story of uh, the people that he meets. So if you look at the outline of how this is laid out, I have the, the rebellion breaks out, which we covered last week, and the David's <laughs> flight, and all the meeting scenes. So <clears throat> this... This whole larger section is really about two things. It's about rebellion and understanding the nature of sin and understanding what an appropriate response is for a godly person in the presence of sin. But it's also about faithfulness and loyalty. And so what you're going to see is you're going to see intermixed in with this story of David's retreat and then re-entry as king, and as the rebellion is crushed, you're going to see stories of loyalty played out, or disloyalty played out. And I would ask you a question, since we're talking about rebellion here, and rebellion, in this sense, I'm characterizing as sin. I mean, this is sin. This is what sin looks like. If you go to Genesis chapter 3, and it talks about sin entering into the world, this is what it looks like. It's a rebellion, a capturing of the heart. Yes, sir. Can I just add to that? I mean, I, I don't disagree with the rebellion and sin, because it is. Yep. Um, but in this case, and in several cases in Scripture, um, it's a lot of half 
sins. You know what I mean? Yeah. So Abraham, just going back a little bit, uh -huh. says, yeah, this is my wife, but this is my sister. Well, it was, it was, that was half true, right? I mean, it was yes. half a lie. It was misleading. Right. You know, that, that's the problem part. And it was half truth. Um, so these half things, I think, get us. So this whole thing of rebellion, yep. it, it's true that it was rebellion, and I believe it was sin as well. But also this guy is like the in line for the kingdom. So it's almost like he's just trying to take the crown just a little bit early. You know what I mean? And so it's that's not it's not that it wasn't his rightful crown. That's correct. It's that it's that he can't do it this way. That's correct. You know, and so that's the half deal, you know. And that's what really, I think, messes us up. And, and that's what's interesting, and that's why I went through the temptation that Christ went through last week. Because it's not that there aren't legitimate needs or legitimate rights. So Absalom was in line to the throne. Um, he had uh, a responsibility and a calling on his life. And what he did is he... Um, he rebelled against God's plan and how that was going to unfold. He wanted it his time. That's right. That's so go back to the Garden of Eden. What happened in the Garden of Eden? And we'll get to you, Doug. <laughs> uh, what happened in the Garden of Eden? The tempter comes in and he immediately addresses true statements and true needs. Right? And that here is... Uh, a couple that has been given uh, a calling on their life by God to be in dominion over his creation. In fact, Adam even named all the animals. Right? So they had a responsibility for stewardship. What do you need to be a good steward? You need good health. You need wisdom. You need insight, right? I mean, I could, you could list off 20 things. What is it, what is required of you to be a good parent? You have to, I mean, all of those things. Take a look at what that means. So these are legitimate areas that the enemy comes in and, and twists it. It gives you the half-truth as you described it. And what Eve did is she looked at that, the argument, and she said, you know, it looks good to eat, and it's good to make one wise. I'm not going to trust God, what God said in his plan and in his time, and I'm going to take the responsibility for, for being the judge of what's good and evil right now. She took God's job, because it wasn't her time to, to be doing that, and maybe it was never her place to be doing that. And that's what Absalom's doing. Absalom said, I'm in line to the throne, but what if God had a different plan? <coughs> Maybe one called Solomon. And Absalom had an opportunity, just like others had an op opportunity, Adonijah, to be part of what God was doing and not dissatisfied with the calling that God had put on their life. One of the great statements of Paul is he said he had learned to be content. Right? He had learned to be content with little and with much. 
in all different circumstances of life because he knew that that was God's hand and calling on his life. Contentment is a real great thing because you're sitting right where God wants you to sit. And when you say, I'm not satisfied with this seat, you're rebellion. <laughs> That's what happens. The heart gets twisted. See, this is so easy and so insidious, and we think of this all the time because it presents itself in the terms of legitimate needs and legitimate rights. It just isn't God's time or plan. And we need to recognize that God's time and plan are important. Not only just important, but the most important thing. And that's what David is realizing, and, and Absalom is not. Yeah, it's okay, I settled down. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, the thing is, the sin, as it was explained to me a long time ago, I never forgot it. Sin is like pregnancy. Yep. You are you <laughs> Yes, but, but what we don't realize is that it is so subtle. It is so subtle. It might be the best right You might be pregnant not knowing yet. <laughs> no, but I'm saying that that happens, right? No. When even if you don't know it, your body knows it. Yeah, well, chemical body changes knows. are already that's, happening. That's correct. So you are or you ain't. And, and there's only one way that that you get pregnant. Either God intervenes, like in the case of Mary, or there's a sexual union. And so uh, you have to be in that field or it doesn't occur. Uh, so the reason I point that out is because sin is very, very subtle. It's a whole bunch of little decisions that are made. So we're confronted with thousands of choices every day. And the outcome of these choices is what what determines the state of your heart, really. It doesn't determine the state of your heart. Your heart actually drives that forward. But that's what God is saying. He's saying there's something wrong with our heart. And that's what causes this rebellion. And, and Absalom knows is that he not only needs to, he, his heart has already been in rebellion, and he wants others to join him because he needs armies. He needs power in order to pull this off. So he's going to win the hearts of others. He's going to tempt them to join him in rebellion. Think about the larger play that's going on. That's what we're told is the battle that you and I are in. You read Ephesians chapter 6, it says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places in the heavenlies. So this is a spiritual battle that's taking place in God's kingdom. And it says, therefore, take the full armor of God that you'll be able to stand in the evil day. And having done all, stand fast. <laughs> so, that's what David's learning here. That's what we're learning here. We're learning about rebellion. And we're learning about loyalty and faithfulness. And I would ask you this question, which is where I was going ten minutes ago before I get out. <laughs> Why does God allow rebellion? <clears throat> if rebellion is so destructive, and it's the, the outplaying of a corrupted heart, why does God even allow it? I think the life on this earth is an educational process. And so, if we didn't, if we're going to be free-willed individuals, we have to be knowledgeable. And I, I think a lot of this stuff is, at some point, as we, if we, hopefully, 
end up up there with him is going to be an experience that's going to help us be better servants of him. So we'll know and understand. Uh, it it right. has to have an educational <clears throat> for good and evil, and to and to have a selection. Mm -hmm. Evil has to exist, or you wouldn't. There would be no selection. Let's, You'd be a bunch let's of play this all the way out then. So the implication is, is that God then created evil, not in order for us to learn the lesson that we learned, because that's the only way we could get that. Or is there another way that we could get this kind of education? I don't think He created it. I think He allowed it. Uh, Satan. I mean, the, the seed. Well, the seed had to be there to some degree, or Satan wouldn't have went that way to start with. But he, he allows that, some way or another, that picture has to be there, to, for, or there would be no choice. So here's, here's a phrase that I hear a lot these days. You don't know what you don't know. Y'all heard that? And the idea is, is that if it's not part of you, not part of your brain and thinking, you can't originate that idea. In fact, I would make a statement that all truth is by revelation of God, because God is truth, and when he reveals truth to you by revealing him and his creation and, and plan to you, then we apprehend it. But it's not something that is within us. In other words, we don't originate truth, so it's because it's not within us. We know that sin is not within God, right? There is no sin in God. And yet sin entered in to God's creation. God didn't create that sin, but he allowed it. So he knew that sin or rebellion was a potential reality, a potential truth. Yes? Right, well, in the same... Um rebellion that results from free will is love results from that same free will. Yes. Without free will there can be no love. Right. So so what God was creating in giving us free will was the ability to love, which is what he is. This is another thing. If you look at the essential character of God, it says God is love. It's not something that he does, although he does love. It is something that he is. So if God wants to share his life with his creation, he puts in place free will. Right? And so that means that the opportunity for rebellion is there. God didn't create it, but it's there. Otherwise, Adam and Eve couldn't have been tempted. Otherwise, God couldn't have been tempted. God was tempted. Right? Jesus was tempted in the garden. So what happens is, is that God knows what he doesn't know. We don't know what we don't know. Right? We are totally dependent upon God in the way. And that's why we have to trust him. Because he says, this is how it works. And this is how I've got you. You're not, you, I have eternal life as the way that I've, I've created you. And your ultimate destiny is to be with me forever, right? That's what he says to us when he calls us, right? So what he wants is he wants us to not rebel against that. 
He wants us to be loyal to Him and to be faithful to Him. So, if He knows that sin and rebellion is destructive, why does He allow that? One is because of free choice. Right? If, but but if, there's... Well, yeah. I was just going to say, if, if He's building an ultimate, eventual family mm-hmm. that He likes, He wants those to be there because of choice, because they want to be there, right. because they know and understand and they're there by choice. Yep. And if they're not willing to make that choice, then they won't be there. And right. that's the family he's, but I, at some point it sounds like there's different things in the Bible that will all be given even up almost to the last minute an opportunity to see and make that choice. Right. Well, there ain't probably nearly as many people lost as we would expect. Mm-hmm. And when I think about it, it's not that God wants rebellion. In fact, he clearly doesn't want rebellion. He's clearly stated, don't rebel. That's the, that's the one thing that will cause you destruction and death. And the day that you sin, you will die. That's what he said. So he, it's not his desire, it's not his will but he allows it. And he didn't allow it in uh, in ignorance. It didn't catch him by surprise. And I don't think he allowed it by plan. I don't think that he it was his intent that sin would enter into the world so that we would get a greater education. Because I think that he created us with the idea uh, that in communion with him, we would get everything we need. That there isn't something that God couldn't provide for us. And that's where the enemy comes in and says, oh, but there is something that God can't provide for you. Right? Don't you know, if you eat this apple, you'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. So that's why I'm I'm, I'm laboring this, because it's a very subtle thing. It sneaks in. It says, you don't have to trust on God. You can trust on yourself. Sean? Sean? Well, we have trouble with defining things like love. Love in and of itself, it hates certain things. And God also hates certain things. I love my wife. If she was to get cancer, I hate that cancer. Yes. I would do anything I would can to destroy it. But we have this sense of love always being what's pleasant and nice. But even in our vows, I vow to abhor any other woman other than my wife upon marrying. Now, nothing personal women, but I hate all women. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the context of this. Yes. And by creating something as wonderful as love, you in essence create the ability for someone then to turn around and appreciate it. Yes. And misuse it. So it's not that you created that kind of evil. It's just that someone... What's worse, to take love and to ignore it? Or to take hate and just dabble with it? You know? Right. God just doesn't want us to be static. He wants that full commitment, that full relationship. Absolutely. Because he knows that that relationship brings health and wholeness. Right? So, my wife, we just went to choir. Now I can talk about her. Uh, very frequently, 
almost every day, I, I say, thank you for choosing me. And what I'm saying there is that whole thing, that she chose me, not, and she didn't choose all of y'all guys, right? <laughs> and that says something very significant about that choice means that she chose me not because I add something to her, but because she chose my well-being. She chose to bless me, not because I deserved it, because I don't. Not because I bring something, because I don't. But because that was her heart towards me. That's what God does when he chooses us. That word for choice is election, by the way. We could have a whole discussion on that. That's what happens when, and that God desires. So when I say, why does God allow rebellion? The reason he allows rebellion is because even though rebellion is wrong and it leads to death, we have the opportunity in that to turn and choose him. This is vitally important because this is what David has learned. That's what Psalm 103 is about. This is what we're going to see as David goes through these meeting scenes as he retreats and as he comes back in. It's about choice and faithfulness and loyalty. Yes, sir. One of the things that seems in this lesson, though, that David doesn't consult God at all. He just does. It seems like everything uh, what seems right to him. I'm going to bail out of town. Right. Because it seems like to me it's not necessarily God wanted Right. Well, and, and one of the things, um, as you walk longer with the Lord, uh, just like as you walk longer with your, your spouse, um, you start to remove the formal part of the dialogue and you just kind of have a running conversation. I don't know if that any of you have been married for a long time. If, you've ex- if that is true, I'll ask you. Is that a true statement? Yes. And such that you don't necessarily have the petition in the sense that David's petitioning God, what do I do here? Rather, he's walking with God and it's apparent to him in that running conversation what he is to do. He is to protect the people, he is to provide for the people, he is to serve the people, even in the difficult task that God has called him to. The reason that I, I believe that is because as we read through this story, let's, let's go ahead and read through here, which I know I have a hard time getting to. <laughs> so the messenger comes to David and says, the hearts, I'm picking up verse 13, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. David said to all of his servants who were with him in Jerusalem, arise, let us flee, for otherwise none of us will escape from Absalom. Go in haste, or he will overtake us quickly and bring down calamity on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. So this is kind of the idea of your response. Like, oh, let's get out of here because, you know, there's death here. Then the king's servant said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord chooses. That's the first statement of loyalty. They said, We trust you. God's called you. What you say is good. So the king went out and all of his household with him. But the king left ten concubines to keep the house. The king went out and all the people with him, and they stopped at the last house. So as he's going out, he's checking doors. Now all of his servants passed on beside him. All the Carathites, all the Pelathites, all the Gittites, 600 men who had come with him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, why will you go with us? 
Return and remain with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile. Return to your own place. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander with us? Shall I go uh, while I go where I will? So he's, he's basically saying, hey, this is a hard life. You're not called to this. Uh, bug out. So you see the care of David for other people here. It says, return, take back your brothers. Mercy and truth be with you. But Atai answered the king and said, As the Lord lives and as my lord the king lives, surely wherever my lord the king may be, whether for death or for life, there also your servant will be. By the way, that should be our confession every day to that which God has called us to, including the relationship with himself. Therefore David said to Atai, Go and pass over. So Atai the Gittite passed over with all of his men and all the little ones who were with him. While all the country was weeping with a loud voice, all the people passed over, and the king also passed over the brook Kidron, and all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. So that path, the way of the wilderness, is that ascent of Adumim that I was pointing out. Now, behold, Zadok also came, and all the Levites with him, carrying the ark of the covenant of God. Now, so David is going knocking on doors saying, we're bugging out. The... Uh, if you're loyal to me, you will be killed. Now's your opportunity. Go ahead of me. I'll pick up the rear. And so he's sending all the people, right? He knocks on the door of the priests, the high priest in this case, and he says, we're bugging out. So what does the priest do, right? Everybody's got their their uh, their ready bag, and they're grabbing their bag and running out the door with the, a couple of Twinkies and some pita bread. <laughs> and so they're headed out the door. The priest... What does he do? He grabs the ark. He says, I'm not going to leave the ark here um, to be defiled. And they set down the ark of God, and Abiathar came up until all of the people had finished passing from the city. The king said to Zadok, Return the ark of God to the city. If I find favor in the sight of the Lord, then he will bring me back again and show me both it and his habitation. But if he should say thus, I have no delight in you, behold... Here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. So David trusts God implicitly. And he's not, and I, and I say this implicitly, it doesn't have to be explicit. So when we have that running conversation with God, we have an impl implicit uh, state of our heart towards him. And that's what David has. He has this implicit state of God towards God that he says, you know, I messed up in my life many, many, many times. And if God chooses at this point to judge me, so be it. I'm willing to stand in judgment because I deserve it. But if God's plan is that I can continue serving him, so be it. I will continue to serve him by my death or by my life. That's what Itai the Gittite had just said to David. He said, I will serve you with my death or with my life. All right. This all seems very straightforward. He's getting all the people that trust him. They're all getting out of town. He's going to yep. save them, try to protect them. Yep. But what seems contrary is he leaves these ten concubines ah. who then are violated and yes. then live the rest of their lives in isolation. It just doesn't seem fair or right. And it's inconsistent with what his behavior was at that point right. to have left those... What are ten women going to do to, to protect the palace? <laughs> and knowing all the time was probably going to happen to him. So, so clearly he's not leaving him to protect 
his what back. He, what was he doing there? Right. What is he doing there? Anybody got any ideas? He says to keep the house. Yes. Just, just as. But I don't know why that's so important under the circumstances. Any ideas? <clears throat> Sean, pardon? Part of King claiming the kingship. He's claiming the women. But see, Absalom is advised to violate them in order to claim the kingship. Right. So, well, you have to ask where he got those concubines. Ask where did he get the concubines? Yes. They were given to him by the Lord because they were Saul's. Right. And with that, it's a sign of a seat of power. Yep. Now from there, we wonder how he dealt with his concubines. And it seems like he took them in and simply protected them, didn't use them in such a case. Correct. But if he would have taken them with him, it would have been a burden. But he's leaving what seems as a, a seal or a sign of power there at the palace. Yes. So what he's doing, essentially, is he's leaving his scepter behind. So the scepter is the king's um, rod that he would use as the sign of his power and authority. And he's saying, if the Lord wills, that scepter will pass from me. If that's what God is doing, that he's using this circumstance in history to bring about a change in the kingship, he says, I'm willing to accept that. So you're correct. And that that's what he's doing, is he's leaving behind um, the power and authority of the kingship, which is an incredible statement for ten concubines, what they represent. It just seems to me like he was advocating, because he, he uh, uh, whenever Absalom was throwing the party, they gave him the invite, said, no, I don't think I want to go there. And he said, Okay, well, I had your other son come. He said, uh, why do you want him to go? He, he kind of had an idea that, okay, he's probably going to get off the... I imagine there's some question in there. It just seems to me like he's not going to fight for the kingdom. He kind of, kind of said, no loss. Um, and, and I think that it's, it's easy to read that as an abdication. Basically, David giving up and saying, I'm going to save my tail and, and run. Um, I don't think that's the case just because of all of the stories around David, right? One of the interesting things in Samuel is that you don't actually get to read what's going on in David's mind or David's heart. What you see is what's going on in the minds and hearts of those around him. If you want to know what's going on in David's mind and heart, read the Psalms. Because that's where he... David reveals what's going on in these moments of, of trial, right? Pardon? He was a fighter. He was a fighter, and he was choosing not to fight. But we find out that, well, he actually was choosing to fight when it came to the battle, the clash of the armies, and that he was greatly outnumbered, probably ten to one. And even though he had thousands and hundreds... There were tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands coming against him. All of the northern tribes, uh, those that uh, Absalom mustered from Judah against David. And David says, I want to go out and lead my men. Even though he had partitioned out his armies, and I'm reading ahead and telling the story ahead. 
Uh, and his men said, no, you need to serve us from behind. So the king, in the protection role here, is taking those people to safety. And the king in the protection role in that later story, the clash of the armies, is saying, I want to lead my people in battle. By my death or by my life, I want to serve those whom God has put under my charge. And so you see David actually expressing that. But he's advised, no, where you need to be to serve us best is in the city. And he calls the shots from there. And it's not that David, and so when I look at the story, I would say, yes, it could look like David's abdicating his responsibility, but I don't think the evidence of what's going on in the hearts and minds around him would reveal that. I don't know about you guys, but if I was told that we were getting overrun by whatever force, and some guy that was trying to cover his tail comes to me and says, hey, you're loyal to me, run with me. Right? and didn't have a plan for my welfare, I would figure out, hey, I'm a mighty man. I can take care of myself. If you're going to turn tail and run, turn tail and run. I'm here to do what God called me to do, which is what the people around David were about. But they realized that David had called them, or had been called by God, and that he was doing what God had called him to do. So they were serving him because they recognized in David um, that he had that implicit relationship with God. When David was making a decision, they trusted that that was God's decision for them. This is a lesson that we need to learn because not all of us have the insight and the wisdom that our leaders have. Right? So God's put us in communities and he's put us under leadership and we need to trust that um, God has some plan and provision there. That doesn't mean that we should be blind and ignorant because if it turns out that that person isn't actually following God, I may want to actually be civilly disobedient. And we find signs of that throughout history. And you know, one of the classic uh, civil disobedience actions in this country occurred with Martin Luther King uh, back in the 60s. Right? So the, the whole idea of civil disobedience, not rising up and rebelling, but stating what is true and right and willing to put their life on the line for that, civil disobedience. So we have the responsibility to be uh, knowledgeable such that we can um, perform our job as citizens of the kingdom. That includes the kingdom of God, by the way. I don't know if you guys know, but you're all, if, if you've placed yourself under the by submission under the authority of the king, you are now citizens of the kingdom. That's in Colossians 1.13. It says you've been, your citizenship has been changed. So you have a responsibility as citizens of the kingdom of God. That means if I'm up here speaking heresy, Sean has a responsibility to come up in a kind way, I hope, and tell me, brother, you're being heretical. Right? And because I have a responsibility in the kingdom of God. You all have a responsibility in the kingdom of God. These men had a responsibility in the kingdom of God under David's leadership. And they were not civilly, civilly disobeying. In other words, they weren't idiots. Um, they were following David because they believed David had God's lead. That's, that would be my reading. The one thing that I have to say is this passage as well as when he left 
uh, <coughs> when Saul was after him. He knew he was anointed, but he, it seemed to me, he held that anointing loosely, in a sense, until God intervened to place him in, in the position. And it seems to me in this instance here, he's holding his position lightly and not the power of seem to have gone to his head. In the sense that right. he's, you know, if God wills, well then Absalom will take it. Right. And um, so in a sense that's, um, it's encouraging to me to see that he is not affected by the power that he is given as a king, as right. a monarch, in this case, because it certainly could Yes, and that's actually one of the major themes that we see running through here is the use and abuse of power. Because power also is delegated from God in order to do that which he has called you to do. And David is not misusing power like he did in the past. And what's interesting is I'm seeing him do a lot of things right, including leaving the concubines. Right? And what we're going to find out, because I believe, and I can support this, that um, David cared for the welfare of these concubines, even once they'd been defiled by Absalom. He cared for them. He didn't kick them out and say, you're unclean women, hit the streets, uh, good luck with that. He cared for them. And that's what we see, is that David is consistently at this point in his life, anyway, um, saying, what is the right thing to do? We are called to do the right thing. We are called to do that which is good. And he's using everything in his faculty uh, and heart in order to do that at this point. Including leaving the ten concubines, which is a scary thing. I mean, can you imagine? He goes to these women and says, I've got the toughest job in the world for you. You need to stay. He's not kicking them out of his house. I'm sure they were fully informed of what was going on. Imagine you're that woman. And the king, who you believe has God's uh, authority, is saying, God says that this is, this is the plan and, uh, and you need to stay. Would you do that? Well, they could have run too. They didn't. Of course, we're out of time. So... I will again read to the end of chapter 15. The king said to also to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Return to the city in peace, and your two sons with you. Your son Ahimaaz and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, uh, I am going to wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So he doesn't know necessarily exactly how God is playing this out. He just knows that the right thing to do is get the people out. So he's going to go down to the uh, down into the Rift Valley. It says, therefore, Zadok and Abiathar remained uh, or returned the Ark of God to Jerusalem and remained there. And David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went, and his head was covered, and he walked barefoot. And all the people who were with him each covered his head and went up weeping as they went. Now someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. It happened, as David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, that behold, 
Hushai, the archite, met with him and his coat torn and dust on his head, David said to him, If you pass over with me, then you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so I will now be your servant. Then you can thwart the counsel of Ahithophel for me. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So it shall be that whatever you hear from the king's house, you shall report to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimaaz, uh, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send me everything that you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. So that's the end of when Absalom comes in and he's now taking the throne. And with the throne, remember David had set up the place of worship in Jerusalem. So the, the ark is there, the priests are there, and the scepter through his concubines is there. So David is not abdicating and running, I don't believe. I believe what he's recognizing is that God may be doing something he doesn't understand, and he has a responsibility to protect those in his charge. Um, or he doesn't understand how God's going to play this out if he is to be, you know, spend all of his days in God's services. We'll go ahead and, and stop there. There's a lot of stuff coming up that is going to bend your mind around, like, is it ever right to tell lies in the service of God? Um, so we're going to look at some of the things that happen that maybe are not necessarily... Uh, sanctioned by God, but nonetheless are the way that we live. So we'll take a look at that next week. And I apologize for taking belaboring this so much, but I think it's so important to understand what's going on here with sin and rebellion. Lord, we thank you so much for uh, what you're doing in our lives. Thank you for my friend and his wife that uh, have been affected by you. And, and Lord, sometimes it takes years and years and years for that to occur, and we just want to remain faithful to that which you've called us to do today, uh, because we don't know the outcome of your plan, Lord. We don't know what you've called us to, either by our death or by our life, but Lord, uh, we offer ourselves to you, and that is my heart, and I know many people's hearts in here, Lord. We ask that you be with uh, the pastor this morning as he shares your word. We ask that it would be effective as it goes out, challenges people in a time of as John was saying earlier, a time where the world is really a mess and it's quite challenging and can be discouraging. Lord, I ask that you would encourage us, not allow us to be discouraged, that your words would minister to us as well as challenge those that don't know you. Lord, we ask that you protect us and you provide for us and we thank you so much for your service towards us, Lord, as we go from here. Thank you, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.